Detroit Today on 101.9 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, I'm really glad you have joined us. In a little bit, we are going to talk specifically about what is going on in Iowa, what we should be expecting to happen there, why it's happening, and what it means for our understanding of the political process, not just this year, but overall, why we do things this way, whether we ought to be looking at how to do things differently, and what will likely happen as a result of this kind of snafu. But first, we want to talk about a related subject. We are going to continue our Defining 2020 series with a look at some of the biggest stories happening around tech, politics, and disinformation, a related subject to the Iowa caucuses. In recent years, the worlds of technology and politics have become increasingly intertwined. Various platforms each have their own policies around political ads and content of that nature. But there is one giant that stands apart from the rest, Facebook. The tech behemoth's contentious political ad policy lacks any real oversight, and it allows politicians to say just about anything they want. So why won't Facebook implement rules or regulations? And what does the lack of supervision mean in the context of our country's democratic process? Here to tell us more about the implications of Facebook's political policy is Peter Kafka. He is a senior correspondent at Recode, and he's host of Recode Media, the weekly podcast that's dedicated to the future of media and technology. He wrote a piece on Vox about Facebook's political ad policy last month, and he joins us now. Peter, welcome to Detroit Today. Good morning. So I want to start with the news, of course, from yesterday, last night, this mm-hmm. this delay, this tremendous delay now in results from the Iowa caucuses. We have you here to talk to us about the role that information and misinformation and sometimes disinformation play in the political process. I wonder if you could start with your reaction to the way that information about what was going on last night seemed to spread, that there was a lot of confusion about what was going on. And it seemed to me that there was a lot of bad information out there. Yeah, I mean, um, you know, I was checking this out at midnight, and the, the most striking thing was no matter how good of a news consumer you are, and I'm a professional news consumer, you couldn't find out what was going on because no one actually knew. Um, and stuff was sort of unfolding eventually from sort of trustworthy sources like the New York Times. You'd had New York Times reporters tweeting out their stories before they were actually published online, um, you know, at midnight, 1 a.m. East Coast time. But, you know, that's the worst-case scenario to figure out what's going on when no one literally knows what's happening. This is why whenever there's a, uh, a, cala- a calamity, a shooting, or a, a, a disaster, you always get these notes on Twitter from people saying, hey, ch- chill out, don't, don't retweet the first thing you see, don't believe the first news story you see. We had this with Kobe Bryant's death, people were speculating about who was on the helicopter. It, it takes a while for stuff to sort out and settle out. That's still happening in Iowa. So you've got this worst-case scenario where no one knows the actual answer. People are still trying to figure it out. And then on top of that, you've got people who I think are deliberately, well, maybe unintentionally, but probably both, um, trying to stir things up, trying to sow confusion. Um, There was a tweet going around last night from a Republican conservative activist named Charlie Kirk, who was blaming the the app debacle. There's a a concern about uh, the app that the uh, caucuses are supposed to use to report the results, and he was saying, well, this is this is because the app uh, was made by Robbie Mook, who was Hillary Clinton's 
Hmm. Old campaign advisor, that's kind of a dog whistle for a certain kind of person. Um, And, you know, under normal circumstances, you know, a a tweet like that could be fact-checked and responded to and or ignored, and it went viral. Uh, Robbie Mook eventually went onto Twitter and said, that's not true. Um, I don't think, frankly, it's terribly important one way or another, but it's an example of sort of this sort of haze of, of, of war. Uh, I hate that metaphor, but uh, fog of war metaphor, but uh, it was going on for hours and hours and hours, and it's still going on this morning. So it's a terrible day to sort of get actual news. Mm. I, would, I, would, I, would, I would tell a lot of your listeners to just... Uh, Check the papers. In Just tune out for a couple of hours and wait. Hours, yeah. <laughs> but and I think that's so ironic because we live in an era where we have instant access to yep. information and to more information than we could ever have imagined even ten years ago. And yet, there is there yeah, is a go good point to that, which is that. Because the caucuses, unlike traditional voting, are held in public, you could go to a gymnasium in Des Moines and actually watch this happen. Um, even though a lot of folks are worried that all sort of skullduggery is going on, everything is happening in public. There's reporters in lots of places taking notes. There's reporters putting results out on, on Twitter. It's not all collated in one place. So you, you can't get the full picture. Um, but it's about as transparent a process as you can have. It's just the the, the setup wasn't there for it. So that, I guess the, the positive side of social media and technology is that you, in theory, could get all of this information if you knew how to assemble it. Hmm. So, so in general, though, this, this incredible availability of information now, as opposed to five or 10 or 30 years ago, is seen as a, a positive, of course, and it is seen as a step forward. But as you pointed out in, in your opening assessment of what's going on in Iowa, we have real problems with the way in which that information is disseminated and the way in which it's governed in the way in which people react to it. Can you talk just a little bit about where you think we are with the intersection of information and technology and mis- and disinformation? You know, this is a new concern that people have, and it really is about five years old to sort of, and really four years old, sort of the election of Trump. Um, people weren't thinking about technology generally this way. Basically, the people in Silicon Valley were, were generally optimists about about um, technology, period. They thought technology was just good, period. And the fact that uh, media, where, where I cover, uh, the fact that you had things like Twitter and Facebook and blogs disrupting places like the New York Times was seen as an inherently good thing. Um, and if you go back and sort of look at the early coverage of Facebook and early coverage of Twitter, they're talking about Twitter uh, helping the Arab Spring along and all, all kinds of other global events. And the idea was if you give people the ability to get information out instantaneously without without any kind of filter, um, and people to receive whatever information they want. That's a net benefit. I think a lot of people still believe that, and I think there's a lot of good arguments for that. Um, what I think people didn't game out was this technology can be used for all kinds of purposes, and a lot of them can be bad, and a lot of them can be unintentionally bad. So I think it's pretty obvious to anyone listening to this conversation now that allowing anyone to say anything on the Internet, I mean, we're not going to stop it. It's not inherently a good thing. And if you're trying to get information and you're trying to verify information, allowing anyone who wants you to shout out into the void um, may not be what we want, and particularly when you see people trying to deliberately misinform people, to deliberately um, steer, steer a conversation in a certain way. And that's what we've seen state actors like Russia 
China, uh, other folks start to get involved in as well. So let's talk about Facebook. Last month, Facebook announced some non-news in a blog entry. The content of the entry was basically announcing that Facebook is not going to change anything around its political ad policy. Briefly talk about what that policy is and why many view its refusal to change that policy as problematic. Facebook has a policy where if you put something up on Facebook and, and, and someone, usually not Facebook, usually some other body, it's a very slow process, determines it to be false, Facebook can take that information down. Um, and this is a very slow, cumbersome process. They've been implementing it for years. It doesn't really work. But in theory, Facebook has a rule saying you can't put up in, important information that is not true. Um, the big exception, it turned out this fall, was when it comes to political ads, ads from candidates, ads from their campaigns. Facebook was deliberately not going to try to fact-check them. Um, a lot of people found this outrageous. Facebook spent all fall uh, having an internal debate about this. And then when asked in externally, I had a conversation with a Facebook executive on stage in the fall about this, um, would give conflicting answers um, and would, would basically say, we're, we're looking into it. Um, and in January, they came out and said, well, we looked into it and we're not changing our policy. And what you can if, go ahead and say a falsehood if you're a candidate. We're, we're, we're not going to assess whether you've made a falsehood, and we're not going to stop you from saying it. So what are the benefits to that for Facebook? What, is this really just about money, or is this about avoiding the difficulty of trying to sort through truth and, and lie and fiction? I think it's the latter. Um, you know, it's a technology company. They're really fundamentally uncomfortable with making editorial decisions. They're also, I think, in many cases, ideologically behind the idea that that um, people aided with computers should be making their own decisions about things they believe, things they don't believe, and that um, sort of centralized control over information or anything else, money, anything else, is an old world idea, and that's a bad idea. Um, they also say that it's not about money. I find that relatively believable. Um, Facebook did uh, 60, I'm guessing here, <clears throat> I think about $67 billion in advertising last year. Um, there's maybe going to be $3 billion put into digital advertising this year. Um, even if they got no political ad dollars, it wouldn't be meaningful to them. Um, and I think the one thing they won't say out loud, but is also very obvious and is true if you talk to them internally, um, is that they're, they're in a lot of trouble politically either way. If they leave this policy up, they're going to get yelled at. And if they change the policy, they are most definitely going to get yelled at by people across the ideological spectrum, um, from Donald Trump to the DNC to even very small sort of uh, liberal uh, NGOs that want the ability to advertise on Facebook without, without being moderated. Um, so they're kind of in a no-win situation, and I think that's where they came out with, which is, uh, which is we're not going to make it worse by making any other decisions. This is Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and my guest is Peter Kafka. He is a senior correspondent at Recode, host of Recode Media, the weekly podcast that's dedicated to the future of media and technology, and co-executive producer of Recode's Code Conference. We're talking about the intersection of technology and information and the ways in which that intersection affects our conversations with each other, our politics, our culture. Uh, we're talking about specifically Facebook, which has recently announced that it will not be reviewing political ads for their truth and, and enforcing some sort of standard of truth uh, against those ads. Uh, if you want to j join the conversation, 
give us a call and tell us what you think about Facebook's political ad policy. What do you think the role of social media should be when it comes to political campaigns, to coverage and elections? But more broadly, tell us whether you think these great platforms we have, these new ways of communicating with each other or spreading information, uh, do they have a responsibility to create policies that benefit users through truth? Do you think the government should create clear regulations around political ads on the internet, for instance? Uh, Do you feel like you can trust political ads that you see? And again, we are waiting desperately now for results from the Iowa caucuses that seem to be delayed in part by technology. Is there something inherently uh, going wrong with the way that we are relying on technology to manage things like this? Uh, And if so, what would you like to see happen or to be different? As always, the number on the phones here is 313-577-1019. That's 313-577-1019. 1019. You can also go to the WDET Facebook page and put comments there. Or you can go to Twitter and hashtag Detroit Today, and we'll try to work you into the conversation. Peter, before we get to listeners, I want to ask you a sort of bigger picture question about Facebook in particular, but also other social media. So I've spent my career as a journalist, uh, mostly in newspapers now and radio and television. And this idea of responsibility for the content that you share with your readers or your listeners or your viewers is is core to to our business is it's core not just to the to the fundamentals of the economics of of journalism but to the moral side of journalism and you said something earlier about facebook not being a publisher that it is more of a a, a technology company and i think there's there's something uh, there's something to that tension that I think we're starting to see emerge. When we saw Mark Zuckerberg, for instance, testify in Washington last year, uh, he was asked whether Facebook was a publisher. And I thought his answer was really interesting. I, I, it, it seemed as though he wasn't sure, that he hadn't really thought it through yet. And I wonder if there is this moment coming where we reckon with the idea of what it means to be a publisher versus what it means to be a technology company and whether that might change the conversation about, for instance, Facebook's political ad policy, but also lots of other platforms and the way that that they take responsibility for the things that happen within their space. Yeah, no, it's a central tension, and this applies to all the platform companies, and not just, by the way, the publishing one. That includes things like Airbnb, where mm-hmm. in theory they're, uh, you're not renting a house from Airbnb, you're renting it from somebody else. Airbnb is just connecting you to. Uh, Uber t- tries to argue that it's doing the same thing. It's connecting a, a, a passenger with a driver. It's just, it's just facilitating that. Um, and oftentimes when bad things happen, um, you'll hear the same response from whoever is being yelled at. They'll say, well, we're just a platform. We, we, we just facilitate a thing. Um, Facebook's been being asked, if, has been asked if they're a media company, a publishing company for years and years. Um, they usually say no, or they try to elide it in some way. I certainly argue from a business perspective, they're a publishing company. They, they put out content. They sell advertising next to it. Um, and again, $67 billion doing that last year. That's a media company in my, in my mind. In their mind, they, they really aren't, and they really aren't comfortable with it. And 
both for legal reasons and business reasons. And again, I, I bring up this a few times, ideological reasons. They really don't think they should be the ones making decisions. And even their responses today, when they're sort of coming around, reckoning with, with this idea that they are going to be held responsible, saying, well, someone else should make the decision. If it's not going to be the user, it could be somebody else. So when it comes to fact-checking, we want someone else to do the fact-checking. We'll, we'll pay them a, a token, but we want someone else to do it. We, they're putting up with an equivalent of a Supreme Court where someone's going to make decisions with difficult, about difficult content uh, issues should this post go up or down. And they're telling governments of the world over and over, Mark Zuckerberg says, please regulate us. Please create rules that we can follow. Um, you could argue that it's, again, idealistic or, or cynical or both, because if, if, if Facebook has rules and can just say, look, in the U.S., this is the rule we followed it in China. This is the rule we followed. Well, not in China. Um, we want rules, and Facebook's in a, and Facebook and the Googles of the world are in much better position to to adapt to those rules than anybody else. Mm-hmm. So they they very much want someone else to make those decisions. They would prefer to not make any decisions at all. That's that's their position. Mm-hmm. Again, three one three five seven seven one zero one nine is the number on the phones. Call and tell us what role you think technology is playing in the way that. We think about uh, interactions, conversations, politics, all of these things that are strongly affected by the technology that we have and the policies that the technology companies embrace. Let's start with Bill in Westland. Bill, welcome to the show. Hey, Stephen. How are you? Good. How are you? Real well. Um, I think your guest is nailing it. Um, There is absolutely no doubt that technology has has opened up transparency across the spectrum. The issue that we're confronted with now as consumers is judging the veracity of the information that we have mm-hmm. and fi- trying to find out where, in fact, truth lies. Obviously, truth is a subjective word, and so we have to verify the stuff that we hear if, in fact, we want to take the time to do that. And I agree with your guests. You know, um, like Facebook and like Google, they're looking for other entities, other government agencies to create the rules that would govern what they put on their, uh, their pages and what they're willing to allow the general public to consume. I think that it behooves us as consumers to be able to check, if we can, what is truth when we hear it. What I see happening is that most people hear it and most people accept whatever it is that they hear as being, in fact, the truth. Mm. I think what we're going to do with this kind of technology is we're going to compel people to seek out what, in fact, is true. And your guest mentioned earlier that, you know, there was so much chaos going on in Iowa that the best thing to do is just kick back for a couple of days mm-hmm. and let everybody sort it out so that you can, in fact, then take a look at what they have in retrospect. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So, yeah, so I, I think that I think that creating rules that govern whatever it is that Facebook and Google want to have governed could be a good thing. But you get in some really slippery territory yeah. here when you you start to when you start to create those kinds of rules. Don't you get into 
censorship. And I mean, certainly, certainly, you bump up against them, Bill. And and sure I, I, I think Absolutely. you you you've laid out a really, I think, intricate look at the the, the the sort of competing issues and values that that we're dealing with. Peter Kafka, respond to what 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 Bill's talking about there. Yeah, no, I think that's right, and this is what you you hear from people. They're much more reticent to say this stuff out loud, or at least they they want it very polished when they do say it. But one of their arguments about, for instance, not not uh, fact checking uh, political candidates' ads is they think it's a free speech issue. Now, now to be fair, they're they're not a public agency; they they can do whatever they want. Uh, but their argument is that the voter is better off hearing from a candidate. Um, if the opposing candidate wants to rebut that, they can do that, and they shouldn't be involved in sort of limiting political speech. And I, I think there is truth to that. Um, and the flip side is it'd be very, very difficult for them to get into telling Donald Trump that he couldn't run that campaign ad because it has an untruth about Elizabeth Warren or whatever scenario you can imagine. Um, it really seems untenable for them to sort of actually get into sort of real-time fact-checking and decision-making when it comes to that. And that is why they want sort of rules of the road. Hmm. Let's go to Otho in Dearborn. Otho, what's on your Hi. mind? Hey, how are well, you? Well, hey, look, uh, I just thought I'd call in because I was a scientist for about six years, and then I went into cloud architecture. So I felt like I had a you know, particular perspective on truth and technology. Mm-hmm. And there seems to be this kind of idea that a lot of people have that truth is something that we can, you know, objectively figure out by using technology the right way or something. But the fact is, is that, you know, the people who try to figure out what's true, I'm talking about scientists right now, you know, this is a very difficult process that requires, you know, dozens of people and groups and, and confidence intervals and figuring out how this stuff works. And, um, you know, this is not something that can just be decided by, you know, a computer or a, an API algorithm somewhere. Uh, you know, it ha- you know, these things have take, take decades to figure out. And, uh, and, and when we, when we try to, off, you know, give this off to some algorithm, it often can backfire. I, I know for me, I've had times where, uh, like, for example, I was putting out some information on Facebook about engineering of roads, and it was scientifically backed information. There was experimental evidence, but because it came from the wrong domain, Facebook continually blocked me from even posting oh, really? this article, right? Oh. So I really, I, I, I advise people to be really cautious about yeah giving the power to anybody to tell them what's true. Yeah. Uh, Otho, I really appreciate the call and that perspective. Peter Kafka, I think that that is a really nice way to to move to discussion of what the future looks like. In, in other words, is this hopeless, this idea that you can police information and misinformation in any sort of credible way? Uh, given the speed and and reach of of the media that we're dealing with now, or are we just too early in the process to expect that to happen and that eventually we'll get there? It's a tough one. Um, a lot of people in my business are spending a lot of time, and they're quite morose trying to imagine how this gets better. Um, a lot of it is going to be incumbent upon the people who are listening to this show to go out and figure things out for themselves and also to determine between things that are true and not true, because some things you can objectively figure out, and some things that have shades of gray or nuance. Um, that's the world. It's a difficult world. I think the problem is if you're a passive consumer, if you're not thinking about any of this, um, it's it's very, very bad. Um, if you're not being a, 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 uh, a smart consumer of, of information in the same way you would be about anything else that's significant that you want to 
acquire in your life, right? House, car, getting married, anything else like that. You don't acquire someone in a marriage. Um, you, you would take that decision seriously. You'd think about that. And I think you should be doing that for all sorts of stuff like this. Now, we all have lives. We're, we all have lots of stuff to do. And you can't be expected to, to fact-check every bit of item that flashes across the screen. Um, so you need to sort of, I guess, the, the tech term is sort of a... Uh, Stacking order, right? Mm-hmm. Um, you figure out what's most important. What do I have to triage? What do I have to figure out today? And some stuff you're going to let go. Hmm. Peter Kafka, senior correspondent at Recode and host of Recode Media, the weekly podcast dedicated to the future of media and technology. It was really great to have you with us here. Thanks for being here. Thanks for having me. Take care. Up next, we're going to continue this conversation about tech, politics, and disinformation with Vox reporter Emily Stewart. We want to continue to hear from you as well. Robert in Detroit, we'll get to your call. If you want to join him, 313-577-1019 is the number on the phones. We'll be right back with more Detroit Today. You're listening to Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, thanks very much for being with us. We're talking about the idea of misinformation and disinformation, how they combine with technology to really complicate the ways we talk to each other, but also the way we process politics in this country. We've got a great example to use at the center of that conversation today as we continue to wait for the results of the Iowa caucuses that have been delayed, apparently, by a technology snafu. In a little bit, we're going to talk specifically about what's going on in Iowa and what that means in the context of this conversation. But right now, we want to continue the more general discussion about disinformation online with Emily Stewart, who is a reporter with Vox. Emily, welcome to Detroit Today. Thank you for having me. So we're going to talk a little bit about Iowa, but but I, I want to talk more now about the general climate around disinformation online when it comes to politics. Even before yesterday's caucuses, there was misinformation spread, of course, about candidates and issues and voting and caucusing in Iowa. Uh, how does this fit into the larger problems of disinformation and misinformation, this, this political exercise that we see going on right now? I mean, it feels like we're in a climate right now where there everybody just feels this huge amount of uncertainty and doubt over what is real, what is not, what is misinformation, what is disinformation, what to believe. And I think we're in a climate, and we're seeing this play out today, but even heading up to today, where you see a hashtag start to trend on Twitter. You know, you think about the Kamala Harris destroyed hashtag way from last summer after one of the debates, and. It was after she had clashed with um, Tulsi Gabbard on the debate stage. And this hashtag starts to trend. And the Kamala fans are saying this is clearly bots. And the Tulsi fans are saying, no, this is organic. And I think (laughs) right now we're just in this culture politically. We're in the wake of 2016 where we learned so much was going on in terms of misinformation that everybody's really nervous about it. And no one really knows what to believe. Let's talk about the difference between misinformation and disinformation and the ways in which they affect 
the process. They, of course, have different motives, but they also, I think, uh, they also have different effects on people's ability to understand what's actually happening and what's not. Right. So misinformation is basically information that is wrong, that is shared. And so we don't know what the intent is. Like, I could accidentally... um, post, you know, I could spread misinformation if I retweet something that's not true. Mm -hmm. And disinformation really is a deliberate campaign. So that's what you see out of, you know, like Russia, like really making an effort in 2016 to spread false information, to spread spread doubt. Um, So it really comes down to intent. And so sometimes they feel interchangeable, but any of us could accidentally spread some misinformation, but disinformation is more deliberate. Mm -hmm. Uh how do, how would you advise our listeners to know what's real and what isn't? I mean, that's one of the, the difficulties, of course, is that all day on social media you see people saying things, and if it's somebody you know or somebody you trust, you're more likely to believe. But that that's not good enough, it seems, in an era where there is so much wrong information out there, either intentionally or because people just don't know the truth. Honestly, and this is something that is a hard burden to put on everyone, but you really just need to do your homework. You see a tweet go by, you see a post on Facebook, look for a trusted news source. You head to the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, the Washington Post, to Vox and see, hey, is this real? Is this not? I think that there is a lot of sometimes doubt about journalism and the role of the press, but the vast majority of the press is really doing its best to get the correct information and to get it right. You know, do a Google, see what even like a Wikipedia says, even though that should not be your final source. (laughs) Um, But I think it really is up to you. If you see something that looks weird, give it a think, you know, give it a Google. Don't just assume everything that you see online is true. Mm -hmm. So we talked a bit with Peter Kafka about Facebook Facebook's policies with political ads. But you recently wrote a piece about how Facebook's policies put Democrats in particular at a disadvantage. Tell me what you saw. Well, it's not necessarily, you know, a disadvantage. I think it really just comes down to like, it's really complicated. You know, I think, A, when we are talking about political ads, what we are not discussing sometimes is the fact that most of the content that is shared on Facebook that is problematic is organic content. It's not the Trump campaign showing me a, a political ad lie necessarily. It's that there are tons of lies spreading on Facebook all of the time organically. That being said, you know, Democrats have had a lot of questions about how to approach this. And there's not, you know, a one way to think about it. But what happens with political advertising, specifically with micro-targeting on Facebook, um, and this is a tactic that has been deployed more against the left, it would seem, is that maybe somebody in a specific area is seeing a voter suppression ad. An ad saying, like, in 2016, Hillary Clinton in the 90s called Black Men Super Predators. Um, And Democrats don't know that that ad is being served. And so it's really hard to respond to that ad if you don't know it's happening at all. Hmm. And and uh, so what should uh, what should the the policy be at Facebook? Are, are, Are they right to sort of extract themselves from all of this sort of deliberation over truth versus fiction? Or do you think they have more of a responsibility because 
they essentially are publishers of this information to, to, to make sure that, that things are true. I mean, it really is, it ultimately is a matter of opinion. And honestly, when you talk to political operatives, you're going to get different responses on this even. You know, some Democrats are going to tell you, we definitely need to get rid of political ads. A lot of them are going to say, wait, like, we're doing this as well. Um, It really just depends. You kind of sit where you stand in this. And you also have to understand that, okay, maybe Facebook clamps down, but then there are other platforms that offer a similar service. Um, You know, I think that Facebook really has washed its hands of a lot of responsibility. And it seems like a decision that they're sticking to. Like, do I wish that they were doing a better job when I go to my Facebook feed and see things that, like, in my mind are like, this is obviously untrue and I cannot believe people think this. Like, yeah, I wish they were doing a better job. But they really seem to have decided, you know what, like, this is where we are. And there's nobody who can make them. I mean, the government could compel them to change their behavior. But right now, there's not really specific legislation that's coming down. Regulators are looking into them for, like, antitrust issues. But there's not, like, a really clear outcome, at least in the United States, where the government would compel them to do better. So what's the difference between the way Facebook is handling this and other social media platforms like Google and Twitter? Have they come up with other approaches to this? Yeah. So basically, Twitter has banned political advertising altogether. Now, for Twitter, this isn't a huge deal because they don't do a lot of business in political ads in the first place. So basically, no political ads. You can do some issue ads around like climate change, and there are certain parameters. Google has banned micro-targeting or limited micro-targeting. So basically, what that means is like like previously, when you were advertising to me on Google... You would say, like, I want to talk to Emily Stewart specifically, who lives at this address in Brooklyn, New York. Now what you can do is say, I want to talk to a woman between the ages of 20 and 40 who lives at X zip code, um, who has voted in the whatever previous election. So you just can't target me as specifically as you used to be able to. like, You can know you're talking to somebody like me, but you can't know that you're talking to me on Google Ads. Hmm. Uh, we are talking about the intersection of technology and misinformation, disinformation, and our politics. Emily Stewart, a reporter with Vox, is our guest. And if you want to join the conversation, give us a call. What are your questions about technology and politics? Do you trust what you read online? Are there sources or stories that you've read and wondered about their authenticity or accuracy, and what did you do about it? Did you follow up by trying to do your own research, or do you just kind of accept that that's what's out there? Do you see your friends posting stories on Twitter or Facebook that look questionable? And when you do, what do you do? Do you confront them about that, or do you just let it go? As always, the number on the phones here is 313-577-1019. That's 313-577-1019. 1019. You can also go to Facebook or Twitter and put comments there, and we'll try to work you into the conversation. Let's go to Robert in Detroit. Robert, welcome to the show. Hi. Um, hey. I think this goes back a little bit further than um, the Internet. It, it started more with the um, getting rid of the Fairness Doctrine, hmm. and um, I think it's just an outgrowth of that. As, as was mentioned, uh, not all websites take political ads, but I think that if you're going to uh, take political ads, then you should have something like the Fairness Doctrine um, with transparency and disclosure um, there. And um, 
I think that um, we need a, a, a change in paradigm. If, if maybe these platforms shouldn't be taking advertising at all, but the content providers should be doing the advertising, getting the advertising revenue, or something like the broadcast uh, networks, so hmm. that there's accountability, because that's the problem. There's no accountability. Right. And as far as what I tell my friends, um, you know, in the past, if there was something blatantly false, I'd, I'd refer them to a website that debunks things. But um, I think that a lot of times I can see when there are talking points circulating on the net, internet, and I um, I look things up myself, and I can kind of see. Um, but when something is patently weird, I, I look it up, and I, I, I try to find the truth. But not everybody has that time or interest. Yeah. Robert, really appreciate the call uh, and, and the comments. Emily Stewart, talk about how the laws work to sort of now. I mean, we were talking about whether the, the, the laws might change to compel different behavior out of Facebook. But Robert brings up the fairness doctrine, for instance, which is a reminder that, that the government has always had some interest in making sure that, that things are true and, and, and that people get sufficient time. But, but what's the state of the law now in terms of what you can or cannot do? Well, when you talk to people in digital advertising, basically what they will tell you is like it's really the Wild West. Like after the 2016 election, there was some legislation proposed in Congress around political advertising. It hasn't gone anywhere. But kind of at this point, we're in, at least legally the platforms can kind of do whatever they want um, and they can allow what they want. They can disallow what they want. And it's around advertising in general, political advertising. There just aren't a lot of guardrails. And uh, the the hearings we saw last year in Congress where Mark Zuckerberg showed up and talked about how they handle these things. Is that a precursor in your mind to more government involvement? I mean, are, are we about to see the government say, eh, we got to do something a little different here? That's really hard to know. You know, I mean, Facebook will come out and Mark Zuckerberg will come out and say, like, please regulate us. But everybody sort of knows things aren't moving at rapid speed through Congress or through Washington, <laughs> D.C. right now. Right. And I... I think that there is also there is not a consensus on what the problem is or what the solution is. And so you'll see politicians on the left and right talk about this. You know, one thing that you keep hearing about a little bit now is this law called or this thing called Section 230, which dates back to 1996. Basically, it says content provider or content platforms are not responsible for what is posted on their website. So if I'm Facebook, I'm not responsible for what anybody puts there. But also, I have the ability to get rid of it, to police my platform however I want, and the government can't infringe on me. And so you have people talking about, you know, if there are ways into that to sort of change that. But again, like, nobody even agrees what the problem is, let alone what the solution is. Okay, we're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, we are going to talk more about the Iowa caucuses with Emily Stewart, a reporter with Vox. We want to hear more of your opinions about this too. And especially, what are you thinking right now about what is going on in Iowa? And what do you think we ought to be doing about it? As always, the number is 313-577-1019. Ed in Detroit, Charlie in Detroit. We'll hear from you next as well. We'll be right back with more Detroit Today. Oh, 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 